If you would, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. And that's where our lesson is going to come from this evening, 1 Corinthians. And we're going to be looking at uh, the word uh, or the, the idea of being called as it appears in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it actually appears a good number of times, uh, whether it's the word called or some derivative of that, like calling or, uh, or call or, or something like that. Uh, the word appears as an adjective, it appears as a verb, it appears as a noun, it appears in a number of different ways in the book. And one of the things that's interesting is to look at the different uses of it throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, and you'll come to, to I think, see some, uh, some things that will help us in our understanding of it, and uh, just help us understand some of the, the interesting ways in which Paul thinks about the word. Uh, Paul, like, for example, he often just uses it as um, a reference to when you became a Christian. He'll refer back to, like, when you were called. You know, and, and when he says when you were called, it just kind of means in general uh, when you became a Christian. But then he'll also use it in other more specific ways to talk about. Chapter 1, in verse 1, it says, uh, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So the first word in the book that's not his name is called. It's an, it's an, adju it's an adjective, and it's describing uh, like what, who he is. He is Paul, the one who was called. Uh, the one who was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And notice that calling happened by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. And so even in the very introduction to who he is, the first thing he can think to tell you is that he's someone who was called by God. But again, that's not the general sense in which everyone who is a Christian is someone who's been called, called through the gospel. In fact, uh, it, you, there's a sense in which you can say every human is called. Not every human is chosen, but every human is called through the gospel. And there's a sense in which some people who accept that call are uniquely called those who are called. And there's also a sense in which people who do specific works within Christianity are called to those works. So you can just look at the word and you can see it very small, specific usage, very broad general usage throughout uh, throughout the Bible. And Paul begins with a couple of those usages just in the first few verses. The first one where he says, Paul called as an apostle. All right, so that's not something that, that's not a calling everyone had. That's a, that's a very rare calling. That's a calling only for a couple specific people. He'll actually use the word again in that way in chapter 15. So if you want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, um, chapter 15 begins the most lengthy and in-depth description of Christian theology on the resurrection in the Bible. Uh, and so it's a really a powerful and, and foundational chapter for Christians, because one of the unique uh, doctrines of Christianity, and not only is it a unique doctrine of Christianity, it rests upon the foundational doctrine of Christianity, is the resurrection. It's like our hope of resurrection is something that sets us apart from a lot of the people who lived in Paul's day and a lot of the people who live in our day. Um, even those who believe in life after death in some spiritual sense often don't have a robust theology of resurrection, where it's like you're actually coming back out of the tomb and, and coming back to life like Jesus did. And so our hope of eternal life is a hope of resurrection. And that's founded upon the first resurrection of that sort, of that nature, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why Paul... If someone's a Christian, like he can, he's dealing with different factions within the church at, at uh, Corinth. There's all kinds of disagreements about all sorts of topics, like all the way through the book, even including the doctrine of the resurrection. But one thing that he knows that they're going to accept if they're a Christian 
is the resurrection of Jesus. The thing that they're divided about isn't whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. It's what happens to our bodies. And so he's going to use the resurrection of Jesus that they all agree upon to argue from that for the resurrection of our own bodies. And so that's, that's why he starts off the chapter with this description of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And that idea is central and foundational to what the gospel is. You don't have the gospel without that. Uh, you don't have salvation without that. That's how we stand. That's what we believe. That's who we are. That's how we are saved. And it's something that is rooted not only in our beliefs, but it's rooted in history, like it actually happened. It's rooted in scripture. He says that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. And so it, it's rooted in scripture. It's not only rooted in scripture and in historical fact, uh, but it's also something you can verify with witness after witness after witness after witness. And he begins to list these witnesses. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 5, the first one he mentions is Cephas. Uh, then the rest of the 12. Then he says in verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. The interesting thing about that the second part of that verse, most of whom are still alive, although some, some have fallen asleep. A um, couple interesting things. One, he talks about their death in terms of falling asleep. If you're in the middle of a discussion of the resurrection, that's a beautiful way to talk about death. Because what happens when you go to sleep is you wake up. Uh, death is, is sleep. And, and so he uses that language, which is, which is really fitting. But also, the only reason he would add that phrase, that most of them are still alive today, is so that you can fact check him about what he's actually saying here. There, there's no reason to say uh, most of whom are still alive unless you're saying so you could actually hear it from them. Uh, and so he mentions Cephas, he mentions the 12, he mentions over 500, most of whom you can still talk to and verify the information. Then he says in verse uh, 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, but then notice verses 8 and 9, and this is where we get to our context of being called. He says, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So he starts off the gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, saying Paul called an apostle uh, of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Then when he considers the fact that he did have an actual resurrection appearance of Jesus, and he says that he is one of those apostles— he says he's not fit to be called an apostle because he is the least worthy of all of them. Because like when Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, the other apostles, though imperfect, at least supported him, you know, at least in, in word. Uh, you know, they, would, they traveled with him. Here Paul is, they are actually, you know, suffering and being beaten for Jesus. And during that time, he's the one doing the beating and inflicting the suffering. He's the one who's persecuting the church of God. And yet God, looking at everyone in the world as to who he was going to call for this divine mission of being an apostle specifically to the Gentiles, he looks at that persecutor and he sees someone worthy of love. He sees someone of value. He sees someone that he can use. And Jesus appears even to him. Paul considers himself totally unworthy of that. Uh, the least worthy of all the apostles to be an apostle. You see the humility, you know, dripping from his words. 
yet God still called him and used him. That's a reminder to me of several things when it comes to the call of God. Yes, there's the general sense in which everyone is called, but there's also important ways in which individuals could be called to specific tasks. Um, it might not be through a literal resurrection appearance of Jesus. Again, it might be through reading scripture and seeing, hey, that's something I should be able to, I, that's something that the church is supposed to do, and that's something I can do, and all of a sudden you hear a calling. You know, that's your calling because you read it. Uh, sometimes it may be the church or, or other members of the community talking to you about different needs in the church, and that's a call. That's a call to, to respond to. Uh, you can hear it in a lot of different ways, and not all of them make for the greatest stories. But God can use you. And even if you consider yourself to be the least worthy of all to do this task or to do this job, God can use you. Um, some, I, I, there's, um, I've, I've heard story, and I've, I've, I don't really know how to fact check this because I wasn't there and I don't know the man, but Jewel Miller is someone who, uh, through his film strips, which uh, some of us have probably heard of in here, uh, has been responsible for like countless thousands of people hearing the gospel, believing and becoming Christians, people being baptized. Uh, the Jewel Miller film strips were one of like the key evangelism tools in the churches of Christ. In fact, um, when I was in my very first work, I was 20 years old, I was preaching in Denison, Texas, and uh, there was a lady who started visiting our church, and uh, me and one of the elders talked to her, and we went together to go have Bible studies with her. And the way that he always studied was using the Jewel Miller film strips. And, uh, and so we went there, and he led the study, and I, I sat there, and I, I went through the whole Jewel Miller film strip thing with her. At that time, though, it was not literally a film strip. It was like the Jewel Miller film strips on a DVD. It was just like pictures and stuff, but, but it went through the whole thing. Uh, anyway, and then she was baptized, and we baptized her. So I've, I've been able to personally see the Jewel Miller film strips teach someone the gospel and then become a Christian uh, because of it. Jewel Miller, what I've been told, and I, at least I heard it in a sermon, uh, he was, uh, when he was a student uh, and he was studying Bible, um, he and a lot of his classmates would go out on weekends and on Sunday and they'd preach at different churches. And when they would do that, he always felt like he was way less efficient than they were. He didn't get the number of responses that they did. People didn't seem to respond to his preaching. He, he felt basically like he was worse at it than them. Uh, and uh, that was something whenever they'd get back and they'd talk about how it went, he never felt confident that that was actually something he was any good at. And so that's something that's kind of difficult to carry around with you. If you want to do this job, if you care about it deeply, but every time you do it, you feel like you're one of the worst at it and everyone else is better and you think, I'm not doing any good at all. But he did think, even though I might not be good at this, there are some things I'm good at and he thinks I'm good at telling stories. And so what he did is he took what he knew about the gospel and turned it into a story using a flannel board and things like that. Like he could actually tell a story using pictures and he could make it something people would want to listen to. It wasn't just like a normal get up and preach a Sunday sermon, but he came up with the story of the Bible and the story of God in such a way that people were intrigued, people were interested, and people responded to it. And the reason he did that is because he felt inadequate doing the other thing. Now, again, I, that's a story that I heard before, but the idea of it is sometimes it's the thing in which you think you're not good at that can drive you to find what you can do for the Lord. Or it's not giving up on that thing, but finding a way in which you can continue to do it. Sometimes I think we can be a little bit too quick to say, 
oh, I'm not good at that. That's not, my, that's not my skill or that's not my gift. And so we never do it anymore. And I don't know that that's always the best option. I'm not saying spend your entire life, you know, uh, you know ramming your head into a wall trying to do a, you know, a, a job for the church that you can't do when you have other things you can do better. But I am saying don't be quick to give up on what God can do through you. Paul didn't say, oh, I'm the least worthy to be called an apostle. I can't do this job and then just never do it. No, he, he continued to do it. He, he, it seems to me as I read his letters, he never quite gets over who he was. Even in his last letters, you know, the, the, to, written to Timothy, he'll talk about the fact that he was the greatest sinner of all. You know, that he's someone who, uh, like, the fact that he persecuted and literally fought to bloodshed against Jesus, that's not something you get over quickly. But he also didn't let him stop him from hindering his call. Now, you may have never been that inadequate at a call, you know, to where you literally fought against the things Jesus was calling you to do. But there are times when maybe a lack of confidence, a lack of belief in what God can do through us can cause us to be quiet. Oh, I can't teach someone the gospel. And so we silently go throughout our day and we pass opportunities that might appear to us. There are things that, uh, like, I, I, I try to be honest with what things I think I do well and what things I don't think I do well. Uh, and there are a good number on that list of things I don't think I do well. Um, but I never want to let the belief that I can't do them well cause me to give up on that aspect of Christian service. I don't want to do that. And, and I think that that's something that... Uh, Perhaps it's the easiest route to go, but we should try to not let that be what defines us. So some of our callings are things like that. But then going back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, notice Paul doesn't only use the word calling in the sense of a specific calling to one ministry. In the very next verse, in verse 2, the verse we talked about this morning, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. And so he's saying, I'm, I'm an apostle by calling, but all of you are saints by calling. Like that's something that is universal. Every one of us is called to be a holy person through the call of God. And what's fascinating is the next line is when he says, uh, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Notice the three uses of the word calling just in these first three verses. Paul called to be an apostle. Everyone called to be saints. And in response to that, we all call on the name of the Lord Jesus. So like our response to being called is to call, uh, is to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Another interesting thing, if you're just, especially if you're looking at the, this, uh, these verses in Greek, there's another word there that you might just skip right past that actually is related to the word call, and that's the word church right there in verse 2. To the church, uh, ekklesia, um, kaleo is the, is the verb, I call, um, and ekklesia is literally, it means called out. Now, sometimes we can, we can over-spiritualize that definition so that we think church is like a, a spiritual Christian word. It's not. The word ekklesia was used by secular people. It's just used to mean a group. But literally, the, like the etymology of the word is that it means called out. And so 
you can see that Paul was called to be an apostle. The whole church are those who have been called out. Every part of the church has been called to be a saint, and in response to that, we call in the name of the Lord Jesus, and that's just the first two verses of 1 Corinthians. So there's a lot in here where he's going to talk about the idea of a calling. Some of it is, is interesting because there's no, like, deep theology behind it. He just uses the word, but even that can be helpful in us understanding what the word means. What I mean is, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 27. In this passage, he's talking about uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols and whether you should or whether you shouldn't. And uh, he, I, I love how uh, incredibly practical his advice is throughout this section. There's several chapters on this, like chapters 8, 9, and 10 all kind of relate to this issue of uh, should you eat meat if you didn't sacrifice it to an idol, but someone else did. They're like, well, I don't believe in idols, and I don't believe in these other gods, so I can eat it and just think they just wasted their time. That's just a different way to cook it, basically, just because they say, you know, that some god exists that doesn't exist. I can still eat it, and some people have that mindset, and so they, they're going to eat it just fine. Some people who have spent their lives in idolatry and in paganism don't feel comfortable eating meat that goes to the God that they just left behind to say, no, Jesus is the only God, but I'm still going to kind of engage in the worship of this God. I'm not really going to worship this God, but, but I'm dabbling in it, you know, and, and some people thought it was a way of, of flirting with idolatry. And then there's different questions you can ask, like, well, what if I just go to the marketplace, they offered it, and I just buy it and take it home. Can I eat it there? What if I'm going and I'm at, uh, at a pagan temple and they're serving meat? Can I eat meat there? Uh, what if I go to someone's house and they are serving meat, and I don't really know if this meat was sacrificed to an idol or not? And like, there's a, there's a bunch of different scenarios you can come up with, to which Paul and some of them will say, look, if you're serving meat and it's been offered to an idol, uh, don't give it to someone who is going to offend their conscience. Like, that's, that's, you know, consider your brother, and don't act for your rights. Act out of love. Don't act based on your knowledge. Act out of love. Love is better than your rights. Love is more important even than your knowledge. So even if you know an idol is nothing, love your brother, and don't give them something that will make them stumble. That's some of his advice. Some of his advice is, don't you dare go to a pagan temple and eat meat sacrificed there. Flee from idolatry. Didn't you learn from Israel? They, they were in the wilderness. They started making those other gods, and they sat down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. You can follow in the exact same footprints and steps as them as you're not careful. Don't go to pagan temples. As a matter of fact, you might think that an idol is nothing, but Paul's going to say it's actually not nothing. It's not that there's nothing behind that God. There are demons and evil spiritual forces all around this world and in the spiritual realm. And what happens when someone worships an idol, this is an amazing thought, I think. Paul doesn't say that's going up to nothing. He says it's actually going up to some of those demons. Like demons have stepped into the place of an invented God and said, I'm going to receive this worship. And so when someone's worshiping an idol, they're actually worshiping a demon. Don't dare go worship a demon and then worship Jesus because you're joining the two together. So he's very clear, don't do that. But what we're going to read is when he gets to the topic of what if you go to someone's house and they're serving uh, like meat that's been sacrificed to an idol. So he says in uh, chapter 10 and verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, 
eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. And that's, that's what I love how practical it is. It's like, just don't ask. Just go there, eat whatever he gives you, be polite, be a nice man, but don't, don't get into that topic because then it's going to bring a bunch of uncomfortable stuff up. But then he says in verse 28, uh, but if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. So like if you go there and they're, they're setting out the plate and they say, oh, and th this meat right here is sacrificed in honor of this great God. And, and they start like making it an idolatrous meal. Don't do it. You, got, you have to politely excuse yourself from the situation. Uh, th those are, th those, I don't know, I just, I when Paul deals with these types of things, he has to really think through what are real situations Christians will find themselves in and how should they address each of these specific instances. Why in the world did I just bring up all of that in this lesson about calling? Well, let's go back to verse 27 when it says, if an unbeliever invites you and you want to go, eat. You know what that word invites you is? It's the word that has been popping up all over, and it's the word he calls you. If he calls you, and so what does that tell us about the word calling, like that Paul uses so much? Again, kind of like the word ecclesia. It's not necessarily a spiritual word. It's just a word that means invite. You know, hey, you, you, you are invited. And so when Paul says that God calls us, that's an invitation, it, that's, just, that's just in general what the word means. If you invite someone to your house, that's that same Greek word. And, and so oftentimes we want to, because we are Christians and because this is the Bible and because we, we have a history of theological words, um, we want to take all of these words and read so much into them, kind of like the word saint. You know, we, we, we sometimes see more to it than the Bible actually puts into it. Well, the word calling isn't necessarily a spiritual word. It's just a word that means you're invited. And you could be invited to an, a friend's house, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or you could be invited to be an apostle, or you could be invited by the gospel to become a follower of Jesus. And with invitations, you can say yes, or you can say no. Uh, and uh, what the Bible is often trying to get us to do is to start saying yes more often. Certainly to the call of the gospel, say yes. But then also to other calls that you might have, say yes and see what God does with that yes. See what God does when you're willing to step out in faith and act, on his, uh, and act for him in his way and in his will. So you can see there's just a very a, a secular usage of the word, but it helps us understand the word a little bit more. Going back to chapter 1, We've looked at the first two verses. We've seen that Paul is called to be an apostle, that we're all called to be saints. The, Christ, the, the church means the called out. Uh, we call on the name of the Lord. And then you get to chapter 1 and verse 9. And this is also a passage that we mentioned, but this is another calling that, God, uh, that is mentioned. It says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So when we're called, we're not just called to, to be saints or just called to be Christians or just called into fellowship with one another. But there's the beautiful idea that we actually become sharers in Jesus himself. We, we have koinonia, we have fellowship, sharing, participation with Jesus. And that's to me, is, is a beautiful idea that it makes what we do meaningful. 
Like when you do an act of service in the church, you're not just doing a momentary act of service. You're actually joining with Jesus in the work of the kingdom of God. Like your service to others in your work in the church is actually an act of fellowship with Jesus. Because what, what was Jesus doing? What was his ministry? He was bringing about the kingdom of God on earth, where, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And he helped those who were in need, and he taught the truth about God, and he uh, washed feet, and he uh, did, I mean, you can just go through the list, and you can see a bunch of things Jesus did. When you serve others, you're, you're joining in that ministry. His ministry didn't die and go to heaven with him. His body, his ministry is still on earth, and as part of his body, we continue it in what we do, and in what we say, and in how we act, and in how we treat others. And so whenever you are called to be a Christian, you're called to fellowship and to share with Jesus in who he is and in what he did. That's, to me, that's a powerful reminder of why we're doing these things, and a reminder that the things we do matter. They really matter. They connect you with Jesus in a way that, that, that not much else does. And so when you do attend worship, when you do encourage someone else, that's encouragement you're doing together with Jesus. When you do uh, help someone who's in need, when you are generous, that's generosity given in, in sharing and in fellowship with Jesus. And so we're called to be in fellowship with him. Sometimes we're, when, I mean, Paul will use the same language uh, when he talks about suffering in the book of Philippians chapter 3. He, he says that we uh, share with him when we're being persecuted, when we're suffering. Like we share in his death in that. Jesus was persecuted and suffering. If you ever find yourself suffering for the sake of Jesus, that's, a, that's an act of fellowship between you and him. You're, you're joining him in that. That, that puts theological significance to hardship and to suffering. That gives theological beauty even to the hardships we face in this life. And so called to fellowship with Jesus, his son, is an important reminder for everything we do in Christ. We're doing so as an act of fellowship. You continue to move through chapter one. By the way, we're still in chapter one, but there aren't many uses outside of chapter one. It's, it's, it's heavy at the beginning of the book, and there's not quite as many later on. But in chapter one, in, uh, in verse 21, he says, For since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Here's uh, the, the problem that Paul is setting up um, crucifixion was a disgrace and a dishonor, a sign of failure and a sign of weakness. People who were strong and people who were wise did not get crucified. People who were worthless and failures and weak and dumb, those are the people who got crucified. Well, there's a problem with that. Jesus, we're trying to get people to believe, is the Lord of the cosmos, is the ultimate source of wisdom, goodness, power in, in this world. Like, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And people hear that, and they think, oh, he's your savior. Oh, he's your Messiah. Well, let's look at his resume. Wasn't very wealthy, didn't have command an impressive army, and was rejected by his people and then was crucified like a failure and a weakling. I don't think so. To them, that message is utter foolishness. Like, it's foolish to say that. You can't think of a worse candidate in the minds of, of the people that Paul is trying to evangelize to 
than the guy who was crucified and killed by the Romans. He clearly isn't more powerful than the Romans. I mean, they, they won, and he lost. And so that's one reason that you can know that the, the story of Jesus is not a made-up story. Christians had a really tough job, and if they're going to try to get people to believe someone is the Messiah, they're not going to make up the one thing that will immediately turn the audience away upon first hearing it, that he was crucified by the Romans. Like, crucifixion, crucifixion wasn't even done to Roman citizens, because no matter what crime they did, they were of too much value and worth. Crucifixion was generally reserved for rebels and for slaves. It was reserved for the, the people who meant nothing to society. And that's, that's what Jesus is. That's why Christianity is the idea of turning the world upside it down. And to go and preach that message is absolute foolishness. And that's why Paul says God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He's not saying that preaching is like actually foolishness. He's taking the world's idea of foolishness and he's saying, okay, if you think it's a foolish message, we'll just know that God was really, really pleased to save people through such a foolish message. That's how God works. What you call foolish, God is able to bring about the salvation of the world through. Uh, he, he moves on to the next verse, verse 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling blocks, to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those of us who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what he does there is he says, okay, so you want to take this message out and Jews are going to hear it and they're going to hear the Messiah. Okay, tell me about the Messiah. Oh, he was crucified? And all of a sudden, crucifixion becomes a, a stumbling block in the way of them believing. It's like, I'll, I'm happy to believe in a Messiah. I want there to be a Messiah. I'm looking for a Messiah. Crucified? It's a stumbling block. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get in the way of them believing. To Greeks, they hear Lord of the universe, crucified. That's just a foolish message. No, he's not. And they just it would Im immediately reject it out of hand. It's just a foolish, silly message, not worthy of paying attention to. But to the called... To those who God has called, this message becomes not a stumbling block and not foolishness. It's actually where you get to see the very power and wisdom of God in full display. Like, the call of God reverses what society says is wise and powerful and great to where we might look like fools for the sake of Christ, but it's for the sake of Christ, and so we're glad to be called fools. And we might look weak in the eyes of the world, but because it's for Jesus, we're glad to look weak. We'll look weak. We'll be fools. We'll preach the message of foolishness because the wisdom of God is found there. Why? Well, the next verse in verse 25, because the foolishness of God, as if there were such a thing, but the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. You take any man and on his best day, and you take God on his worst day, not that he has worst days, but even at God's most foolish, he's wiser than the wisest man. And even at God's weakest, he's stronger than the strongest man. And you're not going to see the picture of God's foolishness or weakness anywhere other than on the cross. And yet that's the message that ultimately turns this world upside down and has impacted this world in a way that no human being ever has. It's the message where we actually see that's not foolish at all. And I had 
my understanding of weakness all mixed up. That's where the strength and the wisdom of God is truly found. And those who are called begin to live in such a way because our calling changes us. It changes the way we see the whole world to where we don't necessarily look at the world now and think, oh, the person with all the money and the, the, all the military might, that's where power is. No, power comes through loving service to others. Wisdom doesn't come through being the person who everyone reveres you because you uh, have like the biggest brain in the world. And you, like, wisdom comes through recognizing that a crucified Savior is the Messiah and is the King of the world. Like, that's where you'll find ultimate. And it's not where the world says that it is. The world thinks crucifixion ruins all of that. But we actually can see wisdom and power through self-giving love and sacrifice. We also see it, and this is something that, you know, we, I don't, I don't know in our culture if we will quite relate to the next paragraph as much as the earliest Christians would have. Maybe we will, maybe it depends on who you are. But the reality is most Christians in the earliest days of the church were not the people of power. They were not the people who ran cities and ran uh, society. They weren't the people who were rich and they weren't the people who were strong and they weren't the people who were generally considered the intelligentsia among us. Like the people who became Christians were often the weak and the poor and the slaves. The, those were often, in fact, Christianity was mocked for that. Like the only people, we, we, have, we have writings of pagans trying to discredit Christianity by saying it's for slaves, fools, and women. Like, sorry to women, they, they were sexist back then. But, uh, but like, the, the idea is, like, Christianity, it's not for the, the elite. It, the fact that you're only able to convert those types of people shows how foolish it is. And Paul is able to pick up on people thinking that. And in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, and there's our word again, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He says, you look at apparently the church in Corinth, there weren't a lot of like, wealthy, noble, powerful ruler types there. Most of the people were probably your average, everyday, probably impoverished, many of whom might have been slaves, like people who didn't run society, but they heard the message of the gospel and they accepted it and they believed it. And Paul says God's thrilled with that. He's thrilled to take the foolish and to, with the foolish, shame the wise. To take those who are considered weak and through weakness overpower the strong. That's what God is doing even through the church. The church is modeling Jesus in that even if you have a church where there aren't any wealthy people, aren't any strong people, aren't any ruler people, you can still have a church that is powerful and mighty in the eyes of God and that can show the world the, what true life is really all about. And that's what you're called to do. That's your calling. Even if you're not the, the, the most impressive human being in the world and your resume doesn't look all that great, God is thrilled to use you, and he's called you for that purpose, that he can demonstrate his truth even through you. He continues in verse 28 with his list, and the base things of the world and uh, the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. That's one of the reasons he does that, is so that when the church is powerful, people don't say, well, it's because we have all the money and all the might and all the wisdom and all the glory. It's like, 
when the foolishness of the message preached turns the city upside down, you know God is at work. It's not anything that humans can boast about, how great we are. It's what God is doing. That mindset is crucial to understanding our calling as Christians and what we are called to do and why God has called us. One other passage I want to look at that uses the word calling quite a bit, it's in chapter 7. In chapter 7, uh, Paul is also in a very practical chapter. Once you get to chapter 7 of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, the, the format of the book changes a little bit. And it seems as though he is responding to questions that he was asked in a letter. So the, the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians are sometimes called the Corinthian Correspondence. Uh, and it's because the church at Corinth seems to be writing letters to Paul, and Paul's firing off letters back to them. And we have a couple of those letters. Um, we call them 1 and 2 Corinthians. They might be better termed 2 and 3 Corinthians, because they're my, or later than that. We don't actually know how many letters they wrote back and forth to each other, but we know we have two of them, and uh, that these two are inspired, and these are the two that God wants us to have as scripture. But we read these, and you can guess from Paul's responses what some of their questions were. It's like hearing one side of a conversation. Have you ever, have you ever, like, uh, been wanting to hear about something and they call your wife or your husband to tell them and you're listening to the conversation but you can only hear them and you're trying to piece together the parts of it to figure out what what the news is if they're happy oh okay that must be good news or you know you're trying to figure things out well that's kind of what reading the books of first and second corinthians are like we are piecing together the problems at corinth based on paul's solutions to the problems at corinth and and so what we get in first corinthians is there's a lot of questions about um about uh, sexual relations, about marriage, about divorce, about uh, virgins, about like all, all sorts of things related to sex and marriage ha have popped up, and Paul is giving a lot of responses. Some of these responses are just, again, they're just wisdom on Paul's part. Uh, they're not necessarily things that Jesus has said, and sometimes he'll even say, I'm giving you my opinion on this, and a lot of times he'll say, this is what I think you should do, but you can do this, and it's not a sin, but still, this is what I think is better. And so, like, he gives a lot of that type of stuff. You know, you can see it in, a, in verse uh, 27 and 28. This is just one example, but he does it all through this chapter. In verse 27, he says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Basically, what he's saying is, as, where you are right now as a Christian, if you're married, don't try to get out of that marriage. Stay in marriage if you're a Christian. If you're not married, don't try to get married. And that's one that we, like the first one we get, the second one think, what? Uh, but he says that, he says, hey, don't, don't, get, don't seek a wife if you're not married. But then he says in verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. Uh, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So he's, he's giving that as advice, but it's not wrong to disobey him. But he's just saying, I don't think it would be very wise. And there is a reason for it. And the reason that I bring up this verse is because that reason that he gives, that he doesn't think you ought to be trying to get married right now, uh, he's going to mention it a couple of times in these verses. In verse 26, he says, I think then that this is good in view of the present distress. He uses the phrase, in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Don't try to get out of a marriage. Don't try to get into a marriage. If you do, you've not sinned. Like, if you do get married, you've not sinned. Uh, and then verse 28, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But then he uses another, another phrase. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. So apparently there's a distress that is present in coming, and that will cause you trouble in life if you get married. 
So what is it? Um, you know, and some people think, well, maybe it's, uh, maybe he's expecting the second coming of Jesus soon. Um, there is, uh, if you read the next couple of verses, verse 29, he says, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened uh, so that from now on, those who have wives should uh, be as, they, as, as though they had none. And, um, and those who weep as though they do not weep. And those who rejoice as though they do not rejoice. And they think the time has been shortened. Maybe he's saying that like Jesus is coming soon. Uh, and then verse 31, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. And then notice this phrase, for the form of this world is passing away. So, okay, so here, here's the point. You have like phrases like present distress, you'll have trouble in this life, he shortened the times, the form of this world is passing away, and those are our clues. What's the problem? Uh, and so you, some people thought, well, maybe he's thinking like the end of the world. I think some of that doesn't, doesn't really add up as I think about it because, um, well, well a, a number of reasons, uh, but one thing that I think might make sense is if there's a, a persecution that he sees coming, and he uses some apocalyptic language to talk about that. Uh, like the form of this world is going to pass away. Like everything's going to change. Notice he doesn't say this world is passing away. But the, the way this world works is going to change. It's passing away. And you need to be ready for it. And if you could imagine, if you are about to go into some heavy persecution, getting married might not make it easier. Um, if not only they can harm you, but now they can harm your wife or your husband, or they can use them as a ploy to get you to deny Christ, all of a sudden, you're not just protecting yourself, or you're not just doing what you think is right. Now, your words are impacting the person you love the most. And, and so, there are ways in which persecution can make marriage a lot harder. Is it a sin to get married? No, he says it's not a sin to get married. But it could make your life worse. So be careful going that route. Uh, so anyway, so that seems to be some of the context that Paul's dealing with here in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, but notice some of the words that he uses in the verses that lead up to that that, uh, that show how he thinks about our calling. In verse 17, he says, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk, as also I direct all the churches. So he's saying, God called you at a certain way in a certain time of your life. Walk in that way. Don't seek big changes in your life right now. Now is not the time for that. Um, if you look at verse 17, and then you look down at verse 24, he's going to say a similar thing where he says, brethren, each one is to remain with God in the condition in which he was called. And then if you look right in, the, in between those two verses, in verse 20, each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. You, you can see he's making a point here. Um, whether you're married or not married, remain in that position that you were when you became a Christian. Don't be seeking big changes because it seems like the world's about to change here a little bit and you need to be, pre to be prepared for that. He's going to be talking about marriage, but he'll use two examples of other things uh, that, that uh, he thinks kind of help us understand why you wouldn't want to make those types of changes. The first one is in uh, verse 18 and 19. He says, was, any man, uh, was a man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. And anyone who was called in uncircumcision, he is not to be circumcised. Um, circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. 
And so here's where he's saying, like, if you're a Jew, don't become a Greek. And if you're a Greek, don't become a, don't make those types of changes right now, because what matters isn't you changing your social identity. What matters is obeying the commands of God. Uh, don't make those types of big changes in your life right now. What, one thing that's, that's kind of interesting in this, comparing this section to Galatians 3.28, where Paul says um, that therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Um, he's going to use those same three categories, male and female, Jew or Greek, slave and free, in this passage right here to talk about how we remain in the calling in which we were called. Uh, and so he's already been talking about marriage, and then we, he moves from that into circumcision versus uncircumcision, which would be like Jew and Gentile. And then notice the next example he uses in verse 21, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. If you're able to become free, do that. But for he who has been called uh, in the Lord while a slave, he is the Lord's freedman. And while, uh, likewise, the one who was called while free is Christ's slave. So notice what he's saying there is, all right, again, this is not the time for big political revolt and things like that. Um, if you are a slave to God, you're a freedman. He gives you freedom in Christ. And if you are free... Well, just like everyone else, you're a slave of Christ. And so the categories that this world places upon you aren't what matters to God. I do think it's interesting right at the end of verse uh, 21, though, he's using slavery as an example. And that can make us a little bit uncomfortable because we would think, well, why would he be telling slaves to stay in slavery if they had the opportunity to get out? Paul recognizes that there is a failure in his illustration right there. Uh, so he does add the phrase, Look, if you are able to become free, do that. So it's like, I, I'm using an illustration about not changing your status, but seriously, if you're a slave and you get the opportunity for freedom, take it. Uh, I'm not telling you to stay a slave forever. But the way that Paul is trying to use the, these um, arguments is that there is a big distress that's coming. And so right now, instead of trying to uproot your life and start something new, figure out how to be faithful to God exactly where you are. If you're married, be faithful while you're married. If you're single, be faithful while you're single. If you're a slave, be a faithful slave. If you're free, be faithful and be free. If you're a Jew, be faithful as a Jew. If you're a Gentile, be faithful as a Gentile. And right now, try to figure out how to serve God as effectively as possible right where you are. And I think a lot of times, we don't always have a present distress that's coming that's going to turn our world upside down. But a lot of times, that can be helpful advice. Sometimes we don't think that we, we don't think that we can be what God wants us to be where we are. And we think, well, I need to move, or I need to do this, or I need to do this, or I need to do this. And sometimes the best thing to do is figure out how to be what God wants you to be right here and right now, exactly where you are in your life. Uh, sometimes it's not always the big grand change of life that you need. Maybe sometimes that that could be helpful. But a lot of times what's helpful is figuring out how to, figuring out how to serve God right where you are. And that's one thing that you were called to do. And so uh, those are some of the uses of the word called. And you can see a lot of different usages in these passages uh, from just a simple invite to someone's house for dinner, to being called to be an apostle, to being called uh, to be a saint, to being called into fellowship with the Son, to being called to see the wisdom and the foolishness of this world for what it really is, to being called uh, and, and remaining in that state in which you were called and being faithful right there as you were called. But in all of these usages, we're seeing God inviting us 
to be transformed into something other than what we currently are. We're seeing ways that God is inviting us to be faithful, inviting us to accept the call. And as we bring our lesson to a close, that's going to be my invitation to you. Uh, to answer yes when God gives you that opportunity. Whether it is to take on uh, a ministry or to serve and to help others in some way, or whether it's to become a Christian. We pray that you would say yes to God tonight while we stand and as we sing.